want to share with you a message that I've titled, Listening That Lingers. We're going to be in Luke chapter 8 today, picking up where we left off last week with the parable of the sower. And that means we'll be starting in verse 16. So if you have a Bible, either a digital copy or a a physical copy, would you find your way to Luke chapter 8? And we'll pick up there here in just a few moments. But before we get to that, I want to just run a few scenarios by all of you to see how well you're listening today. All right, you ready for this? So listen as carefully as you can and then see if you can answer these questions correctly. Okay, here's the first one. Johnny's mother had three children. The first child she had was a girl, so she named her April. The second child was also a girl, so she named that little girl May. The third child was also a girl. What was the name of that girl? Johnny. No, it says Johnny's mother. Are you guys listening? (laughs) All right, here's another one for you. A clerk at a butcher shop is six feet tall, and he has a 36-inch waist. What does he weigh? He weighs meat. That's right. He's a clerk at a butcher shop. All right, how about this one? How many of each animal did Moses take onto the ark? It wasn't Moses. Ah, oh, you've heard this one before. All right, one final one for you. How much dirt is there in a hole that measures two feet wide by three feet long by four feet deep? None, right? It's a hole, right? Those are brain teasers, right? These are things which are kind of set up to be a little bit tricky so that you have to be careful in your listening when you hear them if you're going to respond correctly. And in today's passage, Jesus has something to say to us about careful listening. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, he explicitly says, take care how you listen. A listener who takes care is a careful listener. And you can usually tell whether a listener takes care in what he or she is hearing by the way that listener responds after you've spoken to that individual. You know what I'm talking about? Do any of you know what it's like to speak with someone who listens to you but who really doesn't care what you are saying? Yeah, we've experienced experienced that right i encounter this sort of mentality many times when i reach out to large companies for some form of customer support most large companies in our day have huge call centers of employees who spend their days answering the phones i know this because i've worked for bank of america for a couple of years in one of these call centers that was servicing home equity loans for the bank And when you have a large swath of people who are gathered together in an area like that, who are answering calls all day long, you may find that some of them are more caring about what you have to say than others are. And have you had that experience? So I will sometimes have this practice where I'll call in and I'll talk to someone and I can tell that they really have no intention. They're hearing what I'm saying. But they have no intention on acting about what I'm talking to them about. So in those situations, oftentimes, I would just thank them for their time, hang up the phone, wait 30 seconds, and call back in to see who else I can get, right? Now, I tried to do that a couple of months back when we were in need of a printer in our office, and I found this really good deal. It was like $20 or $40 for a color laser printer. I thought, man, I'm going to stock up on these things. I'm going to buy extras. So if something breaks on that... We'll be ready, and we'll have one just to swap in. 
So I placed my order. It showed available online. But when I completed the order, I got, an, I got an email a day later that said this item is not available. We're not able to complete your purchase. Well, it still showed in stock online, so I thought, I'll call in, and I'll see if I can, you know, have a little negotiation. I tend to be a frugal sort of guy, and I'm going to take the best effort to get the best deal for the Lord's work and his money. And so I call back in, and, and I talk to this lady on the phone, and, and, you know, I gave her my 10-minute spiel to say, you know, here's essentially what's going on. On the website, is there any way that, that you can, you know, kind of help me order these printers that show they're available, even though I've gotten this email that says it's not available? Well, she, uh, she was going straight by the script. You know, a lot of times there's a script, and you could tell they're just kind of reading that script off, and she was going straight by the script, and I could tell I was not getting any with her, so thanked her for her time, hung up the phone, called back in about 30 seconds later, and went through the same 10-minute spiel, only to have the lady on the other end say, didn't you just call and talk to me about this? <laughs> and so I got to say that my attempts are not always foolproof. My strategy is not a flawless one. But in any case, we all know that experience, do we not? That experience of having someone who is listening to us, but they really don't take care how they are listening. Their listening doesn't linger to the point where it causes them to act on what you are talking to them about. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that when it comes to the Word of God, we must take care how we listen. And we must listen to God's Word such that our listening lingers and causes us to flow out into a life of action in obedient living because of what we've heard in God's Word. Listening to God's word is, a, is really a theme that we began last week as we looked at Jesus talking about this parable of the sower. And as Jesus tells this parable of the sower to the crowds, to the multitudes that are gathered there listening, he concludes his, his discourse with them by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There in Luke 8, chapter 8. And this word that's translated here and what Jesus says there in Luke 8, 8 is the Greek word akouo. It's where we get the word acoustic from. We talked about that a little bit last week. But, but it's a word that also uh, uh, can be translated in our English as listen or hear. And, and this word is a word that's very prominent here in Luke chapter 8. Jesus would go on and he would use that word several more times in his parable of the sower to explain the response of various individuals as they heard the word of God and as they responded in different ways. So hearing is this rich theme in the parable of the sower, but that theme of hearing doesn't stop with Jesus' explanation of that parable that ends in verse 15. In fact, the theme continues into our passage today, picking up in verse 16, and we find that that same Greek word, that akuo, that acoustic word, for hearing or listening. That word shows up again twice in the brief passage that we're going to look at here today. And the recurrence of this word and what Luke kind of draws out for us here in Luke chapter 8 is a key for us that will unlock what we're going to read, what we're going to see in God's word here today. So under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, Luke is really directing our attention to this concept of hearing, this concept of listening. And that's what's on rich display here in Luke chapter 8. So today, we're going to encounter the Lord's lessons on listening that lingers. 
So if you're, if you're able, would you please stand together with me as we honor the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Now no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. And his mother, that is Jesus' mother, and his brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Here ends the reading of God's word for today. You may be seated. Now, hopefully you listened with care as you notice the emphasis on listening with care here in these verses. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, take care how you listen. And in verse 21, he says, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus wants us to be careful listeners of God's word. He wants our listening to linger such that it produces action in our lives. And so I ask those of you who are gathered here today, are you a careful listener? listener of God's word and as we walk through this passage here today let me give you four questions to consider that might help you to evaluate whether or not you're a careful listener of God's word the first question I want you to consider is this am I passionate to proclaim Christ am I passionate to proclaim Christ today's passage begins with Jesus using an analogy that we all understand. I mean, this is so commonplace for us. He says, no one lights a lamp to cover it with a container. No one lights a lamp to put it under a bed. Instead, he lights it and he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. Now, I dare say that, that most, if not all of us, have some sort of lamp in our homes. Now, yours is probably plugged into electricity. Not many of us tend to use oil lamps anymore. But the people of Jesus' day used these terracotta. That's the material they were made out of. Terracotta oil lamps. So they were kind of like a dish that had a little handle on the end of it. And these would be filled with olive oil. And a wick would be stuck down within that so that they could burn the lamps. And the lamps would then be placed on Lamp stands. Now, most of you probably have your lamps sitting on a table of some sort. Same idea. Just a, just a table or a shelf that's made with the particular intent of putting a lamp up higher. Why do you want a lamp up higher? Because when the lamp is higher, the light spreads throughout the room. Everyone is able to see its light. So we do that with our own lamps. We plug them in. We put them up on the lampstand. We wouldn't cover a lamp up. You wouldn't plug a lamp into the wall and throw a blanket over it that just doesn't make any sense right it's a very common sort of analogy this is something we easily 
understand, the people of Jesus' day did the same sort of thing. And Jesus says that no one lights a lamp to cover it with a container. Now, when you cover a flame-burning lamp, what does it do? Well, you got a danger of fire, right? But, but more than that, if you cover a flame with, with a container or with a, with a blanket, it'll burn for a few more seconds until it runs out of oxygen, and then the light goes out, right? Same thing happens in Jesus' day when you would put a lamp under the bed. Now, we think of that. We think of sliding the lamp under the bed, and that's going to catch the bed on fire, right? Because our beds are elevated, Whereas the beds in Jesus' day were pretty much just mats that they would lay on the floor. So same sort of idea. If you put the lamp under your bed, you're covering it with a mat, it's going to extinguish the lamp. Now remember the context. Jesus is talking in these verses about hearing God's word. And so he uses this analogy of hiding a lamp to illustrate hiding the word of God. And ultimately, the light of God is his word. And when we talk about that, we're not talking about just the written word, which is certainly a light that God has given to illumine for us things that we would not be able to understand apart from his revelation to us. This is certainly his light, his word. But we also talk about Christ as being the living word who himself said, I am the light of the world. And so the word is what illumines our hearts to understand God's plans for us, both in the law and the prophets and the gospels and all that God has revealed for us in his written word, but also how these attest to the living word of Christ who illumines our hearts, who shows us that God is for us and not against us, that God wants us to be reconciled to him and has an eternal plan for us. And so in this sense, if we're talking about Jesus being the light of God, if we're talking about his word being his light, then what does it mean for us to hide his light? If we were to have a light that has been placed within us and not share that light with others, that, my friends, is covering up the light. That is hiding away the gospel truth. Jesus is saying that we should not hide away the truth from others nobody lights a light just to extinguish it you light a light so that you can enable individuals to see and god has given you his word so that others might see his truths through you and my friends i just want to tell you if you've been struggling in the darkness this is good news for you Many of you who've who've gone through this recent power outage that we had in the wake of Hurricane Florence know how much we miss our lights when they are darkened. Light illumines. And, And for those who are struggling in the darkness, having light can be a very good sort of thing. And friends, I just want to tell you, we have good news to share. God has lit a lamp for us. Christ has come to be life and light for men He does not desire to hide this light from anyone. There may be some who reject the light, but it is not because God has hidden his light. He has made his light available for all to see. And that's why Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And my friends, I just want you to know that God has not hidden his 
light. He has not hidden Christ. He has not hidden the light of the world. No, he has lifted the light up. He was lifted up on the cross of Calvary so that all could see that he was bearing the penalty of our sins, bearing the weight of all that we had done against God. He was lifted up out of the grave as this miraculous history-splitting event that would show that all the world should repent and trust in him. He was lifted up in the ascension that ultimately provides for us this grand revelation that God is not against you, my friends. He is for you. And he has not hidden his truth, his desire, his yearning for you to be reconciled to him. He has lifted up his light. And we praise God for that. And so I ask you, have you been wandering in the darkness? Have you been bruising your toes and banging your shins against the obstacles of life in this constant struggle that leaves you in a state of despair? then I plead with you, come in, weary sinner. Come in out of the darkness. Come in and find the light of the one who offers to save you and to give you an eternal hope and a purpose for living. A light has been lifted up for you, my friends. But that also brings a responsibility for those of us who have received this light Because we have a light to share. We have a joy. We have a hope. We have an eternal destiny to share. We have been illuminated for a purpose. In in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the apostle Peter, Peter writes these words for us. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, every Christian who has received the light has been given the gift of the light so that we might proclaim God's goodness. And my fellow Christians, we ought to have a passion to proclaim Christ. If we take care how we listen, then we will listen with an intent to proclaim the gospel to others. If, on the other hand, We are careless in our listening. Then we will hide what we have heard. We'll go out after hearing the gospel and we'll live our lives as though nothing is different about us. We will not share the eternal truths that we've received with others. That, my friends, is careless listening. For careless listening says, God, I don't care that you've called me to share your hope with others. But if Jesus has truly lit up your heart with the hope of the gospel, he makes it clear that he does so in order that you might be a light to others. And you know, sometimes I think the greatest theology we ever learn is the theology that we learn from some of the most simple things in life. This parable of Jesus is so simple, and yet it is so profound. Just imagine if we were all living out this parable if we were all sharing our light with one another what kind of impact we would have on the world and this just kind of reminds me there's such a simple song that so many of us learned relating to this passage when we were kids do you remember that song this light of mine i'm gonna let it shine 
This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Simple song, grounded in a simple illustration. But my friends, if we could live that out, just imagine the difference that we could have in our community, and in our world. Think of the difference. And my friends, I just want to call upon you to think about the hope that you have received in Christ. Do you realize the eternity that you are headed for in Christ? This, my friends, is good news. I'm excited about where life is headed for me because of what Jesus has done for me. And I think so often we think about sharing the gospel as though it's this great burden for us. But loved ones, my my friends, our opportunity to share Jesus should be excitement for us. This should not be an activity of drudgery for us. Are you excited about what God has done for you in Christ? Then my friends, put that lamp up on the lampstand. Let that good news shine out for others to see. Let that little light shine on. And tell someone, don't keep the lamp to yourselves. There are all sorts of avenues to do this sort of thing. Let me give you a very practical one. Last week, we had the greatest attendance we've had yet at New Vision Fellowship to this day. There were 190 individuals involved with our church in some capacity or another. 23 of those were young ones up in our classroom. All right? Now, we've got two teachers on average in a classroom with 23 individuals. Now, that's not every Sunday, right? So it's not like we're, you know, constantly depriving children. But that's, a, that's an awesome thing. I'm excited to have 23 kids up there. I mean, we didn't have enough chairs, so we're going to order some more chairs for our children's classroom. But do you know a very practical way to share the light of Christ with others, to take this light that's been placed within you and to invest it in others? It would be to become a member of this church, or if you're already a member, to to get involved in teaching these young ones about Jesus. Because, my friends, this light is meant to be lifted up. This light is meant to be shed abroad. And that's a very practical need in our body right now that I would love to see more individuals signing up for so that we could really take these treasures that have been entrusted to us and show them the eternal hope that we share. Am I passionate to proclaim Christ? That's the first of four questions to consider as you evaluate whether or not you're a careful listener of God's word. Here's the second one. Am I consistent with my confession of Christ? Am I consistent with my confession of Christ? Jesus says in verse 17 that nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, light is something that you desire if you're stumbling around in the darkness. But if you're using the darkness to hide certain things which you ought not be doing, then light is not something that you desire. No criminal likes the light of a police officer shining on him when he's up to no good, right? Because light doesn't just illuminate, light also exposes. And Jesus says here, that all things will become evident. 
Now, you may think, my friends, that you're hiding something from God. But, friend, let me tell you, just as plainly as Jesus tells you here in verse 17, you are not. He knows about your sin. He knows about your disobedience. He knows about your refusals to live consistent with your confession. And our God can sniff out a fake. And he will sniff out a fake. Jesus makes it clear here. So if you're claiming to be a Christian, if you are confessing Christ as your Lord, but you aren't living consistent with that confession, if you're dressing nice on Sundays and you're talking the talk and, and, you, and you're in the rest of the week, you're plugged into the things that you know God would not approve of in your life. Or if you're holding on to some habit that you know his word has spoken so clearly against, my friends, you should be where? Based on what Jesus reveals for us here, because every hidden thing will become evident. Every secret will be made known. And you may be able to hide your sins from me. You may be able to hide your sins from the rest of this flock, but you cannot hide your sins from God. And a careful listener knows that God's word calls for us to live consistent with our confession of Christ. And there are a number number of reasons why people might hold on to hidden activities or sinful practices. Sometimes it's out of shame. Sometimes it's out of a selfish pleasure. Other times it's just to stay out of jail. But let me tell you this, my friends. I would rather come clean now and face the wrath of an earthly government by outing my sin than face the eternal governor and his penalties for all of eternity. And I'd rather face the ire of my neighbors and the ire of the, than, than the ire of the God who made me. I'd rather have eternal pleasure in knowing that I will one day meet my maker and spend all of eternity with him rather than dwell in the temporary pleasures of sin here and now. And those who do not listen carefully live hypocritical lives. Because careless living, my friends, puts on a show. And it's become rather commonplace in our day for many churches to only talk about positive topics. I get no great enjoyment out of standing forward and talking about sin and preaching that God will one day reveal all the secrets of every man's heart. This is not an enjoyable thing, but it is a faithful thing. It it would be a shortfall in my ministry. It would be a shortfall in the ministry of this church if we did not address the issue of sin. And yet so many churches refuse to speak of sin. They don't want to drag people down. They don't want to dampen the mood in church. And so they no longer call out the greedy or the prideful or the cohabiting or the homosexual or the one who pursues sex outside of marriage or the one who gossips. They, they no longer call out the sins which are common to so many of us because they don't want to put a damper on the mood. But my friends, a, a church that no longer speaks of sin is a church that is setting sinners up for a shocking eternity. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, Jesus says here. And all of us must know that we are sinners so that we can bring our sin to the light and let the light deal with what it exposes. 
And my friends, Jesus has dealt with your sins. There is no thing in your background which his grace cannot cover. And he yearns for you to be restored to the heavenly father. When he exposes, he exposes in a way that desires for you to be reconciled to God. Not to be eternally damned, not to be eternally condemned. But my friends, until we come to him by faith, that is our status. That is who we are. And so the question we must ask is, am I consistent with my confession of Christ? That's the second of four questions to consider as you evaluate whether or not you're a careful listener of God's word. Here's the third. Am I responding to what I have received from Christ? Am I responding to what I have received from Christ? In verse 18, Jesus says, Take care how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. This is a truth that we looked at briefly last week in the parable of the sower. When God gives his word to you and you shun what his word is calling you to do, there's a scriptural truth that even what God has given to you will be taken away. And this is a consistent theme in the Bible. Proverbs chapter 9, for example, verses 9 and 10, we read, Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But there's a contrast that comes directly before those verses in Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. That's where we read, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. So the word says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. And so which of those are you, my friends? When you hear God's word, do you hate the God who calls you out on your sin and bids you to join his work? Or do you you increase in your learning, grow in wisdom, respond to his word, turn away from your sins and trust in him? Are you a careful hearer who responds to what you've received from Christ? Because a careless listener suppresses his conscience and quenches the spirit of God and ignores what God's word is calling him to do. And so he says, God, I don't care that this area of my life is not pleasing to you. It's pleasing to me and that is enough. Or or I don't care that you call me to follow Jesus. I'm content with my way of life and how things are going. And I don't need you as bad as you seem to think that I need you that would be a foolish careless way to listen and so when you hear the word of god in a setting like this when you're gathered together with god's people do you have a longing to do what you hear are you obeying his word or do you go out of here saying i don't know how long i can keep enduring this bunch of nonsense i don't want to listen to this a careful listener to God's word responds to what he has received from Christ. And so he says, I'm glad to hear what God wants in my life because now I know what I need to do in order to honor the Lord. So the question then is, am I responding to what I have received from Christ? That's the third of four questions to consider as you evaluate whether or not you are a careful listener 
of God's word. Here's the final question. Am I found in the family of Christ? Am I found in the family of Christ? In verse 19, we read that Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him. Did you know that Jesus had earthly brothers? While he was here on earth, he had actual brothers from the same mother. In fact, he had sisters also. In Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus spent some time ministering in his hometown. There were folks that he grew up around. And, And while he was ministering there... The hometown crowd was astonished at his teaching and his miracles and his wisdom. So they said in Mark chapter 6 verse 3, what you might expect the hometown crowd to say. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So we see from this verse here that Jesus had four brothers and an undisclosed number of sisters. Now, his brothers didn't believe in him during his time of ministry. We find that in John's gospel. But sometime between then and his ascension, they came to believe in him. And actually, two of his brothers, James and Jude, were used to author books of the New Testament. Now, these brothers and sisters were half-siblings of Jesus. Why would I say they're half-siblings? Well, if you recall, Jesus' mother Mary miraculously conceived her firstborn child, who was Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, While she was still a virgin, this child was announced by angels to both Mary and to her betrothed husband, who was Joseph. That's what we're talking about when we celebrate this Christmas season. And Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 says that Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. And so Jesus' earthly father, who was Joseph, was not his biological father. But the Bible never says that Mary stayed a virgin for the rest of her life after Jesus was born. Now, there are some sects of Christianity that teach what is known as the perpetual virginity of Mary. And by that, they mean that they say that, that Mary would remain a virgin for the entirety of her life. That's just not possible if she had other children here, like we see in the gospel. Now, why, why would certain sects of Christianity like Catholicism teach that? Well, it, because it makes G, Mary seem like a more holy, unharmed, undefiled sort of individual that enables them to pray. We, we know that we don't need to pray through Mary, that Christ has come as our mediator and has accomplished for us what enables us to speak directly with God. But here you have it. Jesus had brothers. Jesus had sisters. And they were coming to him They were wishing to see him, according to verses 19 and 20 of Luke 8. And you might ask, well, where's Jesus' dad, Joseph, in the midst of all this? Well, we presume that Joseph has died at some point before this. Why do we presume that? Well, one, because we don't see him in passages like this. But also, if you'll remember, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, as Jesus is about to die, his mother Mary... And the disciple whom he greatly loved, who was John, were both standing there by the cross. Here's Jesus bearing the weight and the penalty of the sins of the world on the cross. And yet he takes out a moment to speak to these two individuals to ensure that his mother is cared for. And so he says, mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he establishes this relationship that John describes in his gospel as one whereby he took her into his home and cared for her 
from that point on. Mary would not have needed that if Joseph was still living at this point. But obviously, he has passed on from the scene at this point. And then we begin to say, well, why, does, why did Jesus' brothers and his mother come to him at this point in Luke chapter 8? Well, Mark gives us a little bit more insight into that. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. We read that when Jesus came home, the multitude gathered around him to such an extent that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. And in the midst of these great crowds and all of these things going on, the Pharisees start accusing Jesus of doing what he's doing by the power of Satan. Well, word of all of this kind of comes back, comes back to Jesus' family. And we read in Mark 3.21 that when his own people heard this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. You see, Jesus' family thought, Jesus, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. You don't know about how people are talking about. You don't know that your life is on the line in the midst of this ministry. So they were trying to do a good thing. They were trying to come and rescue him out of this crowd. They wouldn't even let him eat. They were trying to get him away from these Pharisees who were claiming that what he was doing was a a wicked thing empowered by Satan. And so they gather. They they come to rescue Jesus. And they're not able to get in because of the crowds. And someone says to Jesus in verse 20, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. Now Jesus' response here is a little bit shocking to us at first. Because in verse 21, he says to those who are announcing his family's presence, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, Jesus isn't dishonoring his family here. He did care for his mother and his brothers to the end. That's apparent by the fact that his brothers were converted. It's apparent by the fact that he cared for his mother even as he hung on the cross. But Jesus is teaching you and me a lesson here. And that lesson is that there is a greater family than the one that you were physically born into. You see, those who hear God's word and do it give evidence that they have entered into God's family. Now, this, my friends, is not a call for us to work works that are going to earn salvation for us because that's just not what the Bible tells us. Salvation is by grace through faith. That not of ourselves is a gift of God accomplished fully by what Christ has done for us. But saving faith, my friends, produces fruitful works. Those who are truly saved should expect that God is going to do a work in their heart and drive them as the Lord of their lives through His Spirit into a life of obedience that produces fruit. And Jesus came to welcome us into God's family. Jesus came to make us adopted sons and daughters. Christ, our brother, has come to melt the ice that has kept us at odds with our Heavenly Father. He has come to grant us peace with God. And when you're born again in Christ, you are born into a new family. Jesus consistently shows in Scripture that this heavenly family and our relationship with our heavenly Father must be a more important relationship than any other relationship that we have here on earth. It's a struggle that the disciples knew. The disciples had left everything. They had left their homes. They had left their families. And so Peter says to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife 
or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So you know when someone has listened to you carefully because he does what you ask him to do. He exercises a listening that lingers. And those who listen carelessly to God's word don't do what God says to do. A careless listener will not commit to being a part of God's family. A careless listener won't listen to God's word or do what God says to do. And my friends, maybe you're here and you come from a broken family. Maybe you come from a family where, where dad was just never around. Or dad was abusive. Or there was tension between mom and dad and they were fighting all the time. Or you had to grow up with grandparents who just weren't able to do all the things with you that, that the family members of other families were able to do with them. Whatever the situation might be, I want to tell you, my friends, that there is a family for you here in this place through the power of the gospel. We become brothers and sisters in Christ because of what he has done to reconcile us to our heavenly father. And we have, my friends, through Christ, a wonderful family. This is a joyful gift that we receive through the gospel. Plymouth Plantation is a living, living museum in Massachusetts that, ex, that attempts to replicate life in the Plymouth colony that settled in the 17th century. Now that's the colony that gathered together uh, with the Wampanoag Indian tribe in the fall of 1621 for this three-day celebration in order to give thanks for a bountiful harvest at the end of a year of great difficulty. That event is considered to be the historical birth of the American holiday of Thanksgiving. But as, as individuals who man this living museum there in, in Plymouth Plantation would tell you, there's really no historical link between the mill of 1621 and the mill that many of you ate just this past Thursday and then again on Friday and maybe even some of you yesterday. That is, there were no turkeys there were no pumpkin pies. There were no cranberry sauces or yams or white potatoes at that historic 1621 meal. The pilgrims and the Native Americans may not have even eaten around the table, according to those living at the living plantation. In fact, there was no consistent tradition of Thanksgiving in America until Abraham Lincoln declared it a national holiday in the year 1863. That's 222 years after the settlers and the natives joined together for this feast. So why then did this, this feast, this celebration, this holiday make its way onto the American calendar? Well, as it turns out, Thanksgiving came to be an American staple largely because of the persuasive efforts of one magazine editor whose name was Sarah Josepha Hale. You, you might also know a nursery rhyme that she wrote called Mary Had a Little Lamb. Hale was the one who wrote this nursery rhyme. But this author and editor had this great hope that a day of giving thanks might bring some sense of unity to her country, which at that time was fiercely divided between North and South. These were the years preceding the Civil War. And so she campaigned for 17 years until President Lincoln 
finally declared Thanksgiving to be a national holiday in the year 1863. That was right after the Civil War, or right in the midst of the Civil War, as a matter of fact. Hale had hoped that a national day of thanks might prevent civil war and heal a fractured country. And although her efforts did not prevent war, she definitely had a vision for something that you and I should consider here in the wake of Thanksgiving. When we set aside deliberate times to give thanks to God for what he has given us, we find ourselves united in something that drowns out our differences. And my friends, on this day, we gather around the Lord's table. We gather with thanksgiving in our hearts. 